When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Anne-Marie Boris to talk about her book, American Unitarian Churches, Architecture of a Democratic Religion. Anne is an Associate Professor of Architecture at the University of Washington. And Anne, thank you so much for being here with me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. Now, before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I um, I studied architecture first as an undergraduate and went on to work in the profession for about seven or eight years, getting licensed along the way, and decided to go get a master's degree with Syracuse University in Florence. After spending a year in Italy, I went on to the doctoral program at the University of Pennsylvania. The opportunity uh, came to begin teaching full-time at the University of Cincinnati. And uh, now I've been teaching here at the University of Washington for about 12 years. So before, so now that we're jumping right in, I guess I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep on this, this, this train here of uh, personal questions. So what drew you to do so much research and visit so many Unitarian churches? The primary thing that got me started, although several things kind of converged, um, the primary thing was that I was rereading some of the scholarship on Wright's Unity Temple and Lucan's First Unitarian Church in Architecture for my course that I was teaching at the time. And I felt there wasn't much context given for claims that they were unique compared to either what came before or that they became a model for what came after. So I went looking for some information on Unitarian churches a little bit more broadly, and I couldn't find any, which <laughs> set off a little bell. Um, around the same time, though, I had already been thinking about some similarities between two churches I knew firsthand, one that had been around the corner from where I lived in Cincinnati and one here in Seattle. They were both pretty striking and had some similarities. And they were both done by uh, regionally successful architects. I wanted, I thought I might write a paper, you know, for to submit for a conference about them. And I went online to try to find a third because I thought 
you know, three is always a good number. And uh, one was in wood and one was in steel. So I thought I might find one in concrete. And I did. It was the First Unitarian Church of Arlington, Virginia. And so I did uh, write a paper uh, comparing those, um, the, the sort of structural expressionism of those churches. Mm-hmm. Um, but in looking for the, that, that example, um, I also found a lot of other innovative churches from the 50s and 60s. And uh, so once I kind of stumbled on this cache of interesting uh, buildings, I started to look at the history of Unitarianism because I really didn't know much about it and to find what I could on their churches of the 19th century, because that would be what came before Wright's Unity Temple. Um, So um, that hunch um, seemed to just play out. And I went a lot deeper than I ever expected to go. (laughs) (laughs) And so I want to, I do want to circle back to, you know, the history of the, the church that you talked about. Uh, however, so you mentioned Frankwood, right? And I, I think most architects, those studying architecture, you know, I, I, can, I think most know Frankwood, right? And I also think most of them are aware of his ties to Unitarianism. I guess I, I, I know I personally was not aware of how many other architects and how many, you know, how many of them are involved. And so again, I know that's a big question, but could you talk a little bit more about some of these other architects? You already mentioned Louis Kahn, who I was not familiar with being involved. I mean, I guess what other architects were involved in this that I don't think most of us are aware of? Sure. Um, you know, the, what one of the things that I was, you know, discovering slowly as the story was unfolding is that, in fact, there's a kind of a through line of excellence in American architecture in telling the story of Unitarian churches. The very first ones were from by Charles Bullfinch, who... Uh-huh you know, was, was, did the Massachusetts State House, was uh, one of the architects for the U.S. Capitol building, one of the first professional architects in this country, in fact, and he was a Unitarian. And um, so he did quite a few Unitarian churches in Boston and New England, and then also did the, the first one in Washington, D.C. when he moved there to um, work on the uh, U.S. Capitol building. Mm-hmm. Um, post-Civil War, there are, were works by Richardson and Furness. Frank Furness was actually the son of a Unitarian minister. And so uh, he, uh, both Richardson and Furness had their very first commissions as solo architects uh, from Unitarian congregations. Just an interesting little, little connection yeah. there. And um, there were around that time, there were some other unusual examples in New York and Boston, but the architects are not as well known. But then, uh, you know, towards the end of the 19th century, there were works in the Bay Area by by Bernard Maybeck and Albert Schweinfurth, uh, who were among the arts and crafts um, uh, architects of that that, uh, region. And let's see, the other one that I would mention in the sort of distant, more distant past, uh, right around 1900, uh, was a church for Evanston, Illinois, by Marion McGriffin, Marion Mahoney Griffin, while she was working in Frank Lloyd Wright's Oak Park studio. Um, so unusual to have one by a woman. And she also, she designed it before Wright had started his designs for uh, Unity Temple. Interesting. I'm sorry. 
Oh, so did you want the, the 20th century the list? I of can course. just give you a quick list there. Of course. We, we've got Pietro uh, Belushi, Victor Lundy, Edward Durrell Stone, Ulrich Franzen, Paul Rudolph, and William Worcester is, uh, is a good short list. And so you, you mentioned Edward uh, Durrell Stone. It, you know, it's interesting. I lived in Schenectady, New York for years, very close to this church, and was not aware of it, did not know it was a Unitarian church, didn't... <laughs> And so, again, going through the book, you know, it's very interesting to see some of that. And so, again, I, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I think a lot of us, you know, because we're not aware of all the other architects besides Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, some of these other churches, as well known or not, you know, a lot of other religions, I think there's usually a similar design language between churches. For the Unitarian churches, would you say that there's a common design tying them together or are they all truly one-off projects? There was some conformity in various periods, um, especially, you know, in the 19th century, uh, many of the urban churches were just following the general trends in in church design. So you get um, the 19th century revival styles, essentially. But there were always a few outliers that, that tried something really different. And then into the 20th century, when we get into the post-World War II works, um, they're really all quite different. Each, each congregation wanted something of a self-portrait um, for their congregation through the architectural expression of their church. And of course, um, the mid-century modern architects were all really exploring for a personal uh, style you know, by which to update modernism of the of the international style. Mm-hmm. You know, there was much more variety that was going uh, going on, and um, I think each individual architect was trained to think of themselves as the artist architect and looking for their own vocabulary of, of form and material. So they all do look quite different. And so, you know, I, I guess in my opinion, it does seem like of all the different, you know, religions, there does seem to be a bit of a draw of a lot of architects to do in a Unitarian church. Would you think it's because of that freedom to explore it to their own heart's content? I, I think very much so. I think that the congregations were always interested in ha- being up to date or innovative. They're right. not interested in tradition. They're not interested in looking backwards. They're very progressive <laughs> and they're very forward looking. So they invited architects you know, that, that they expected to um, be uh, you know, innovative and experimental. Uh, they didn't want something exotic for right. the most part, but but they weren't afraid of being something a little different. One of the funny things about uh, exploring some of the churches is they had a lot of funny nicknames by people around them <laughs> <laughs> because right. they were not they were not your average church, and so uh, they got they got their reputation that way. <laughs> and so you had, you kind of talked about a few characteristics of the congregation. And so, you know, again, I, I, I'm familiar with the Unitarian religion because of Frank Wright and some of his churches, but I personally, before reading this, I'll, I'll pretend like I didn't read it, was not aware of kind of the, some of the main tenets of the religion itself. And so I, I'm wondering if you could maybe elaborate on that for some of our listeners who have probably heard about it or aware of some of the buildings, but probably don't know much about why this religion 
is, is a little uh, separated from the rest. Sure. It actually had its roots um, right around the same time as the American Revolution and the one or two decades following that. And it was basically the product of a split in, in the Congregationalists, the New England Congregationalists, who were descendants of the Puritans, essentially. Hmm. And so this split occurred between um, uh, the, the mainstream or conservative branch who wanted to reestablish their roots to their sort of Puritan ideologies and um, the more liberal branch that uh, was, was interested in going a different way. And I think that the easiest way to, to just, uh, it's a little bit um, of a caricature or, you know, but to, to just say that the Congregationalists were very uh, much in, in belief of original sin and the depravity of man and what you had to do for salvation in mm -hmm. the afterlife. Uh, the Unitarians were very much about the dignity of man and that, um, that you know, that the sign of, of God was in his creation as man or humans, I should say. Right. Um, although the literature that you're reading to understand these things is all from, you know, a time when <laughs> they would call it man. Right. Um, so that was the split of the ways, and the Unitarian uh, Unitarianism was a leading cultural force throughout the the 19th century in America. It was not. Um, it was not not uh, as strict a kind of a form of Protestantism as, as the rest in the 19th century. And then, and then it was at the end of the 19th century that, that things evolved to the point where they really started having a strong contingent of atheism within the, um, the denomination. Is that right? Yeah, and in the 20th century, they were very involved with um, the formation of the first Humanist Manifesto in the 1930s. And while everyone in a Unitarian congregation then and today is expected to decide for themselves of their own belief system, there is no single belief one has to, to hold to be a Unitarian and you to mentioned join a congregation. And towards the end of the book, you do mention uh, that it does have a real strong focus on citizen uh, participation. Hopefully I didn't butcher your, your quote there. No, I, I believe, and you mentioned, you know, Louis Sullivan actually really, uh, along with many of the architects, really do push that idea of instead of decisions coming on from up high, it's more down to the individual. I mean, would that be accurate? Yes, I would say so. Yeah. And so that actually, and I uh, that leads me to another question I was having. And so I guess, and again, this is a very vague question, but, you know, the book, of course, is very in-depth about the, the past and the, the history of Unitarianism. I guess the question is, you know, is the Unitarian movement, I mean, is that still around? Is it still as active or strong as it was? Yes, absolutely. It is. Um, well, not as strong as it was in the 19th century. Right. <laughs> I should say that for sure. But as strong as it has been uh, in the 20th century, there um, were a couple of times when things kind of 
kind of trended a little downward, which seven, the seventies, right after the period I, I, where I end, I ended about 1970, there right. wasn't sort of a downturn, but that had to do with a lot of the social change going on in the country anyway. Interesting. Um, but there was a, a resurgence back up to about the 1960 level um, in the nineties and early aughts. So um, as far as my research had it, they were still about as strong as that. That said, it's still like less than 1% of the country. Oh, really? <laughs> so it's a very small, it's a very small, um, um, you know, num- numerically, but it has a large cultural throw weight, right. even, you know, um, th- throughout the 20th century. I'm not, I don't know that it still does today, but definitely throughout the 20th century. Well, it's interesting to hear that smaller percentage than I would have imagined. Yeah. And so, of course, those listening can't see all the, the great graphics and drawings. But uh, so, of course, we've covered, you know, there is quite a bit of difference. You know, the churches really are standalone and they, they don't resemble the, the traditional church. However, you know, in all your research, would you say that there are some similarities or cues from traditional church architecture that does seem to show up in buildings? Or is it truly a complete separation from that? Yeah, I, I think. I think there's not really anything coming from a traditional church so so much, and I think that's one reason the architects of the 20th century uh, were so drawn to the commissions, right? Uh, because it really gave them a chance instead of to be sort of problem solvers, to be more of a problem setter in <laughs> the sense of what is a church that has for a religion that has no symbols, right. no rituals, no agreed upon um, belief system or creed. Uh, those are things we usually, you know, dig into for design to, you know, embody with with architectural design um and so it was was that blank slate that i think was probably very appealing agreed and so again the book does a great job with a lot of case studies and sadly we just wouldn't be able to cover them all without staying here all day but you know after a year in depth research are is there two or three specific churches that uh, have a special place in your heart and maybe can you tell us why that is or their significant sure. their significance overall. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, I think the one that jumps to mind first and foremost is actually um, one by an architect who is not well known. He died young, but um, it was from the 1890s in Berkeley, and um, it was for the first you know it was for, called First Unitarian Church of Berkeley. And Bernard Maybeck was actually a, a member of the church, but he wasn't commissioned for it because he was, uh, when they finally had the funds together to build, he was in Europe at the time looking at um, things for inspiration because he had been hired to do the Berkeley campus already. Um, so Schweinfurth uh, had worked with Maybeck on some projects and um, was on his own and he got the commission and it, it, um, was you know the 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 nickname was it the church of the power plant <laughs> although i'm not sure i really see why somebody called it a power plant but it really um caught the spirit of of the um, arts and crafts in the bay area and um used cedar shingles and and had two giant redwood logs for columns 
mm-hmm. on the corners of the of the porches on each side. It's still uh, standing. It's, it was sold to to the campus when the congregation moved up the hill in early 1960s, and has been a dance studio for the um, Berkeley campus. Um, so I think it really shows this um, rawness of uh, some of the the design work. It was the first one to use um, steel casement windows, for instance. Um, And actually Maybeck designed, um, about seven years later, Maybeck designed a a secondary building to work to be the social hall. And unfortunately the campus tore that down when they acquired the property. But it uh, was, was quite compelling design. Oh, that, that's a great um, explanation. So that would be my first. <laughs> and, um, and then for Ness's um, first uh, Unitarian Church of Philadelphia is, is just kind of a wild thing. Uh, it's, it's in the middle of, it's from eight, uh, 1883, and, or yes, 83. And it's um, so mid-Victorian era. There's no style you could actually call it. Um, the that's actually one thing that again ties Richardson and Furness together is they were among those architects that we look to to say first were successfully broke away from derivative work of of uh, Europe, and um, the the church is was for his father's congregation. His father had retired at the time, but um, he was hired for their the church they needed when they were um, uh, in a period of growth. And it is just full of all kinds of quirky details that in, introduce a lot of natural themes um, that he designed for himself. And um, the the... the Great. One of the great features is that it, it has this long, low, arcaded porch on the front uh, facing Chestnut Street. And the last bay over was a library so that you could go into the library and borrow a book um, if you didn't really want to go sit in the service. <laughs> it, there's always this thing about Unitarian churches is you have a choice. Right. There's no sort of compulsion to get in there get in the doors so um uh, i love that that there's a a library on your way to church a, a great explanation thank you so much and so again like i said we could cover every church and be here for a while but so mm-hmm. now that the book has you know been finished and completed i guess now what is the next thing taking up your time you know what's your what's the next project in the future well i haven't um really committed yet to like something okay. I would quite call the level of a project, but, you know, I am exploring a few things that did arise from this work. Um, where I'm currently writing a short paper that I'll be presenting in June to the Architecture, Culture, and Spirituality, Spirituality uh, Forum Symposium. It's actually going to take place at Falling Water. Interesting. Um, and the, the, the paper is uh, digs into some of the creative processes in which the mid-century Unitarian churches were produced. I'm also continuing to read biographies from some 19th century figures that caught my attention. I was just really fascinated by the work I did looking at the 19th century for this book. Um, one of the things I'm reading is about Margaret Fuller, who 
many people would recognize among the transcendentalists, um, at, but probably don't know she's, uh, a, well, one of her descendants was Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller. I did not know that. And um, so, <laughs> and his middle name, Buckminster, was another Unitarian um, uh, minister in Boston in the 1830s, Joseph Buckminster. Um, so there's just all these funny connections there. Yeah. <laughs> and at any rate, um, <laughs> and then I'm also um, really interested in exploring the potential for architecture to express democratic values a lot further. I, I take that up in the last chapter of the book, and I think um, uh, found a, a clear make a clear case, clear enough case that that's what these congregations were asking for from their architects, something that would express their, their um, belief in democracy and their adherence to using democratic processes for all com community or congregational um, business. Um, but I'd like to expand on that a little bit past these communities and uh, think about uh, the you know the political dimensions of of spatial relations as they're now being called into critique with um, un, unarticulated inherent um, imbalances of power are now being brought to the fore. Uh, I would like to to follow the chain of of democratic expressions of space a little further. Those are those are some big subjects. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to hear about any of them. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, same here. And for everyone listening, the book is American Unitarian Churches, Architecture of a Dem Democratic Religion. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.